But this morning, Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28, and let's pray as we hear God's Word. Father, we do pray that you would take a hard text, a confusing text, and that you would make it clear to us this morning, and that you would press home whatever truths it is that you want to communicate to us gathered in this room and in the fellowship hall and online. Speak to each of us as we have need and reveal yourself to us, we pray. In Christ, the living word's name, we utter all of this. Amen. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28, this is the holy and errant word of God. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And a loss for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. When I was in seminary, I worked at an insurance company full-time, and I can remember one particular day where someone brought in a newspaper article. It appeared in that morning newspaper, and it circulated around the office, and with it, there was a palpable buzz as conversation kind of erupted everywhere. And I can remember reading the article with great excitement. It was a story about a new invention that was coming into the world that would be revealed fully uh, about three weeks after this article ran. And I don't get too excited about new inventions. Uh, I was pretty excited reading this article. Uh, I remember specifically reading how they had gathered some of the great movers and shakers of our day and 
some of the great inventors of our day and how they had all come to this inventor's home and they had seen this thing and how they had giggled. I thought, if they giggled, this is exciting. They quoted Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs as saying that this invention could be even more important than the personal computer. They quoted in the, in the article John Doerr, who is the venture capitalist that was behind Netscape and Amazon as saying that this could be as significant as the invention of the internet. And so we all began brainstorming and thinking, what could this be? And the only hints that they gave in the article is that they said that this could be a game changer in urban planning and daily life and that we would have to adjust our, our streetlight situation here in this country. And then, particularly to us, they commented that college campuses especially would have to adjust because of what would occur on them. And so we knew it had something to do with transportation, and our minds started going. I, I was excited. I thought maybe this could be a jetpack, you know, a cheap form we could get around. Uh, I thought... Maybe it could be those anti-gravity boots that you put on and you could hove about six inches above the ground and just fly. If any of you invent that, I get royalties. That's my idea. Uh, it's about three weeks later, someone brought in then what was the news article that explained what this great invention was. And it was not a jetpack. It was not anti-gravity boots. It was the Segway. Now, the fact that three-fourths of you in the room don't even know what a Segway is show how, shows how unimportant this is. Now, if I explain it to you, you'll, you'll know what it is. It's that little motorized stand-up scooter that mall cops and security guards in airports ride on. This was going to change the world. It didn't. But there was great expectation can misunderstand what is coming because we have the wrong expectations. And that can be funny or not so funny, like the Segway. It can also be destructive. You remember last week that the disciples came to Jesus with two questions. They had two questions that they really saw as one question. The first question was, Jesus, when is the temple and Jerusalem going to be destroyed? The second question is, when will the end of time come with your return? When will the temple and Jerusalem be destroyed? And when will the end time come with your, re your return? And they saw those two things happening simultaneously at the same time. And you'll remember that when Jesus was answering these two questions, which in their mind was really one question, He is going back and forth between answering these questions. Why? Because He wants to prepare them. He doesn't want them to have false expectations. He wants them to be prepared so they're not devastated. And he's going to, in our text again today, he's wrestling with these two questions that they saw as one question, but really are two different time periods. He's going to address both of these, and he's going to switch back and forth between them as he answers this question. 
So I want to look at that this morning from our text. It is a little hard to sort through, but we're going to do our best. What I want to say at the very outset is as we're looking at this text, primarily, primarily, Jesus is, ask, is answering their first question. When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed, and when is the temple going to be destroyed? And as we saw last week, as a precursor to this week, that is going to happen in A.D. 70. And so he's preparing them for that, their generation. So first, I want us to look at the instruction that Jesus gives of the four points this morning. What is the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples? And the instruction is very simple. When this comes, run. Run. That's the instruction. Why? Why run? Because the disciples might have had the expectation that when this abomination of desolation, what he is going to describe, when the Romans come in and they attack the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple, that maybe they are meant to stay there and fight against the Romans. This is the city of the king. They have acknowledged Jesus as that king, so maybe they're supposed to stay. Or maybe it is that when the Romans come into the city and destroy Jerusalem and the temple, that they are to fight against this because the king will return, the Messiah will come. Isn't this what he was supposed to do, is vanquish the Romans? Or maybe they even thought that they were supposed to stay and to fight because that would help to consummate the kingdom. It would help to usher in Christ returning and establishing His kingdom forevermore. We're seeing it consummated. And so He tells them, no, when this happens, run. And he's very clear. There's not to be any hesitation. They are to go. He says that there's a person that's on a housetop. At this, in this day, they would have had these flat rooftops in, in Palestine, and they would have gone up on these rooftops to relax or to gather with others. It was a place where they could have ample space and where the breeze would flow through on a hot Judean day. And so he says, if you are on top of one of these flat rooftops, don't go down into your house when this comes. No, you run. If you forget your cloak, if you don't have a cloak with you and realize it, don't turn back for that cloak. Run. It's like uh, the warning that we give to our children, the instruction when we say to them, look, if there is a fire in the house, don't go looking for your possessions. Don't get your favorite toy. Don't go looking for anybody else in the family. Just get out. That's his instructions. In fact, he warns them and he laments there as he continues on in verse 19 and 20. He laments for pregnant women and nursing mothers on that day, he tells the disciples to pray that it wouldn't be a cold day. Why? Because pregnant women and nursing mothers and coldness makes fleeing all the harder. He's saying you don't want to be encumbered in any way. 
Nothing that could be an added burden to you because the judgment and the punishment is going to be so swift and so great, you've got to be able to run. Isn't that curious from Jesus? Run. This isn't cowardice. No, He's the Lord of all. Jesus isn't scared of anyone or anything, and He isn't seeking to sow cowardice in His disciples. He's simply telling them to be wise in the circumstances. Listen, the disciples of Christ, as disciples of Christ, we are to willingly give our lives, and we're willingly to stand our ground, but not unthinkingly and not unwisely. The Christian never seeks martyrdom like the Muslim. It's not part of our faith. We don't seek it. We're to willingly give our lives for Christ. We're to willingly speak the truth of His name. But Jesus does not ask these disciples to throw care to the wind and run into the fire. There's no reason for these disciples to put their personal life in harm's way when this destruction comes upon Jerusalem. There's no great benefit to them remaining in the city. And so Jesus simply tells them to run. J.C. Ryle said about this passage, and I touched on a little bit last Sunday night, something similar. He said, there are times when it shows more grace to be quiet and wait and pray and watch for opportunities than to defy our adversaries and rush them to the battle. As Ryle said, may we have wisdom to know how to act in time of persecution. It is possible to be rash as well as to be a coward. To stop our own usefulness by being overly hot as well as by being overly cold. He doesn't want the disciples to be overly hot in this context. He says, run. Get away. Don't run into this fire. Run away from this fire. Let's try and make sense of what he's talking about here with this abomination of desolation and what he is warning them about and try and sort our way through this. So second, let us understand the abomination of desolation, what he refers to here in verse 15. As I said, I believe that Jesus in this text is placing an emphasis. The priority is upon what is going to happen in AD 70 with the Romans attacking the city of Jerusalem. Titus, the Roman general, will surround the city of Jerusalem a couple of years before, and he will begin to starve out the city. And then in AD 70, he will finally enter in at the head of his army, and they will sack the city, and they will destroy the temple as Jesus prophesied in our account last week. And in this way, Titus is a type of Antichrist. Uh, as he persecutes God's people. And so when Jesus makes this reference at the very outset here, when he says that when this time of abomination of desolation comes, he is registering in people's minds the offense that's going to happen. The Jews, the disciples, as they would have heard this, their minds would have immediately run to the Old Testament. This would have been a very familiar phrase. And it would have been a very familiar history to them. The abomination of desolation. 
He's pointing back to the book of Daniel and Daniel's prophecy. And I want to work that out and think through that a little bit together. But before we do so, I, I want to emphasize that as he's going through this, he's primarily talking about A.D. 70 and not his second return when he returns upon the clouds and takes home believers with him and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And how do we know this? Well, you remember he's answering both questions. He's answering both the question of when will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed and when will you return in the end of the age come? And it would make very little sense if at the outset of this passage he's answering the question of his return and the end of the age. Because he's saying to disciples that they are to run. You can't run from Jesus' second returning. And if you are a disciple, why would you seek to run from Jesus returning. Now he's clearly talking about A.D. 70. And as he says there in verse 27, his coming will be seen by all. That is, there's no escaping. Everyone will see it from east to west. So there's no point in running if he is there talking about his second coming. You remember the question the disciples were asking was about that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And Luke, when he prefaces here the Olivet Discourse, he will have Jesus saying in chapter 21, verse 20 of Luke, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And that's expressly what we see in AD 70. The Roman army is surrounding Jerusalem, and then the desolation occurs. And that's where the emphasis is at. So, Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's talking about not a worldwide event, his return. He's talking about something happening locally, A.D. 70. So, what is this abomination of desolation? As I said, it has a long history. The Jews would have known that phrase. It comes from Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. And they would have known the fulfilled prophecy from Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. The abomination of desolation. It's a, it's a phrase, but it makes a lot of sense when you just think about those two words. An abomination that is something that's offensive to God. There is an abomination, an offense to God that lays something desolate, that makes it unholy, that destroys it. The abomination of desolation, an offense to God that makes that place desolate. When Daniel is speaking about it in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, when he's prophesying, he is looking down the corridors of time and he sees the near time event to his prophecy. There will be a second fulfillment of it, what Jesus is speaking about in A.D. 70. But when Daniel is looking at it, he is seeing that near fulfillment. As we mentioned last week, prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. And we're going to see from our text today that this abomination of desolation, I think, has three fulfillments. The first that Daniel sees immediately is one that we would speak about with Antiochus IV, or the king of Syria. 
We have come to call him in history Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes, this would have been something that would have been in every Jew's mind, every disciple's mind that is listening to Jesus. When they hear abomination of desolation, their mind would have immediately gone to Antiochus Epiphanes in history. Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of Syria. He will go down to attack Egypt and to subjugate the country of Egypt. And while he is on his way down to Egypt, he makes a pit stop in Israel. And in Israel, he will go into Jerusalem and he will go into the temple and he will carry away some of the relics from the Jewish temple. And then he will go on to Egypt and he will conquer Egypt. When he is in Egypt... There will be a rumor that circulates around Israel that Antiochus Epiphanes died in combat in Egypt. And so because he had just stopped off and he had stolen things from the temple, the Jews are elated and they start to party. Antiochus Epiphanes is dead. So Antiochus Epiphanes goes back to Syria. He has heard of the Jews celebrating his death. A year later, Egypt rebels again, and so he heads down to Egypt again to subjugate them. But this time it's not quite as easy. It's not as easy because the Roman Empire has started, and Rome has sent down a fleet of ships to stop Antiochus Epiphanes from going down to Egypt. It is one of my favorite scenes from the ancient world where Laianus, who is uh, a Roman general, will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Antiochus Epiphanes, and he will tell him that he is not to go down to Egypt. He is to turn around to go home with his army. And Antiochus Epiphanes asks for a little time to consider it. He is hoping that he will have some weeks so that he can send for more troops from Syria to come down and to join his army, and then he can blow past the Romans, and he can go down into Egypt. And Leonis takes his sword out of his hilt, and he draws a circle in the dirt around Antiochus Epiphanes, and he says, you have time to consider, you just can't leave the circle. There's two alpha males toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And Antiochus Epiphanes realizes that uh, Leonis has a bigger sword than he does, and so he turns tail and he goes home. But he's angry, and he can't take it out on the Egyptians, he can't take it out upon the Romans, but he remembers those pesky Jews that were celebrating his supposed death a year earlier, and so he stops off in Jerusalem. And he decides to punish them, so he will sack the city. He will go into the temple, and he wants to offer them the greatest offense he possibly can. And so he walks into the temple, and he takes an unclean pig, and he sacrifices that unclean pig upon the altar of God. The abomination of desolation. He offers a great offense to God in the holy place and makes that holy place unholy. The abomination of desolation. When the Jews hear this in Jesus' day, this is just 130 years earlier, that is what goes through their mind. The temple being made unholy by a pagan. 
And so when he speaks about this, they have in their mind he's speaking about the temple because he is. He's speaking about its destruction in A.D. 70. It will be great destruction as this occurs and as Titus walks into Jerusalem and he lays siege to Jerusalem and destroys the temple. It will be, as Jesus says in verse 21, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. This will be the worst destruction Jerusalem ever faces in its history. It is worse than 583 B.C. when it's conquered and the first temple is destroyed. It's worse than when Antiochus Epiphanes comes in 163 B.C. It is worse. It's estimated that at this time when Titus conquers Jerusalem that a million Jews were killed in the conquering of Jerusalem. D.A. Carson said it this way, he said, there have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population has been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. It will be laid waste. It was a, a horrific event. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, will catalog the destruction of Jerusalem. And he will speak about how the Roman army surrounds the city and systematically starves the Jews in the city. That when the Romans enter the city, they will go into different houses and they will find the floors of the houses just littered with men, women, and children that have starved to death that they will find half-eaten corpses of infants because they were feasting upon them. He will speak about those that are left in the city of Jerusalem, that when the Roman soldiers come in, they will decide to massacre all that they can, and they will set fire to everything. And Josephus will say that the only thing that put out some of the fires was how much blood was running down the streets. He says this, no one, not even a foreigner, who had seen the old Judea and the glorious suburbs of the city and now set their eyes on her present desolation. That interesting, he uses the same word. Could have helped sighing and groaning at so terrible a change for every trace of beauty had been blotted out by war and nobody who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. When he was already there, he would have still been looking for the city. It's just gone. The Romans, of course, will not only destroy the city and the temple, even as Jesus said they would, and burn it down and remove stone from upon stone, but they will then take the Jews and they will scatter them throughout the empire. And truly, the Jewish people had no sense of belonging or corporate life together until 1948 with the reestablishment of the Jewish state. Destroyed the Jewish people. So Jesus, when He is speaking of this abomination of desolation, He is speaking of Titus going in 
destroying this temple and this horrific day. And he's saying to his disciples, this day is coming. It's coming in your lifetime. Don't stay. Run. He is the sovereign Lord of history. He knows what is coming. And so he's showing care and concern for them and saying, don't think sticking around is heroic. Run. And yet, I also think we can interpret this passage, at least the latter half of it, as simply more than A.D. 70 and think we must translate it or interpret it as more than just occurring in A.D. 70. It's primarily about that, but not just that. Remember, Jesus is answering both questions. When will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed? When will you return and the end of the age come? And he will go back and forth throughout the Olivet Discourse in answering those two things. And I think he does that here in our passage this morning. Jerusalem will be destroyed, but that will not be the end. And that will not be the sign of his return. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that when the end comes, there will be a man of lawlessness, an antichrist who demands worship, and he will desolate the church, the church being God's temple, the people of God. If I can, when we talked last week about this and we were looking at dispensationalism, that probably that end times view that most of you are familiar, most familiar with. And it has a view that says that, look, there is going to be this great tribulation. Before this great tribulation, there's going to be a secret rapture where Christ appears. This, there will be a kind of second coming where He appears and He raptures secretly all Christians off the face of the earth. They go to heaven or paradise to be with Him. And then there will be a great time of tribulation. And after that great time of tribulation, then will Christ return again. So you have a second, second coming of Christ where He returns again. And He will reign over the people, uh, the Jews, in Israel, in the land of Israel for a literal thousand years before He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And they will take this passage and understand that what Jesus is speaking about here is that great tribulation on earth for the Jews before he ushers in that literal thousand-year reign or millennium over the Jews in the land. I think it's wrong. Why would he say in verse 22 that those days will be cut short for the sake of the elect? It's a word that's used throughout the New Testament, not just to speak of Jews that have believed in Christ, but also Gentiles that have believed in Christ. It is the elect that these days are cut short for. But even more importantly, if you look at verse 39, the verse that follows our passage this morning, Jesus says this in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? The days he just spoke about. At the end of this passage, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. He's speaking about his second coming. 
immediately after these days of tribulation, these days of persecution, when there are false prophets and there are those that are saying, here is the Christ and there is the Christ, and even some are performing miracles. Jesus is saying, after that persecution, after that trial, immediately he returns. Not, not a thousand year hiatus, but immediately after those days, he returns. In fact, I think this is what Paul is telling us in 2 Thessalonians as well. There will be great trials before the return of Christ. Revelation 20 makes it clear as well that Satan is loosed from his bonds for a season before the end. That is, he's given more leniency in the earth and he will cause destruction and disruption and persecution. And so Jesus warns his people that this is coming. Don't be surprised. It's coming. But I want you to see our third quick point. Let us understand Christ's protection of his sheep in the midst of this. Protection of his sheep in the midst of this. There are many who look at these last days and Christians and who fear these days and say, ah, such horrific days, and there's this trepidation in us, and, and part of that's right. Those are hard days, days of turmoil and trial and persecution and strife. And yet it's not as if all of history is moving along like a river, just like blind fate, where it's just kind of going and just streaming along, and this is what's going to happen. No, this is a river that is guided and established and led and flows at the direction of our Savior. The Lord over heaven and earth is the one who directs this river of history. And He keeps it within bounds. He will only allow it to flow so far and go over so far and go only certain ways. He keeps it within its banks. He says he will only allow it to go so far for the sake of the salvation of the elect. Christ always, always has in his mind, because they are upon his heart, his people. And so even as they are going through these times of hardship and these times of persecution and these times of distress, he hasn't forsaken them. He isn't separated from them. He's actually safeguarding them. Even as he continues to direct the course of history. Sheep are never parted from him. It does appear that there will be time of true tribulation and intense persecution of Christians at the end. I also think I don't have time to get into it this morning, but I also think there's going to be a mass coming to saving faith of people at the end. And I think the Scriptures point to that as well. But what he's pointing at here is the judgment to come. And as we've seen in our evening series with the prophet Elijah, 
God brings judgment upon the nation of Israel for their lack of faith and faithfulness. That is, that is a shadow, a foreshadowing of the judgment at the end of the age. So every single judgment that comes upon the earth is a foreshadowing of this judgment that will come at the end. And every Antichrist from Pharaoh to Antiochus Epiphanes to Titus is a foreshadowing of that man of lawlessness that Paul talks about that will come at the end. When Christ shall, low, shall make Satan and his demons laid low. It's all just foreshadowing that. And he returns in the second advent. When will that persecution end? When will that tribulation end? When Christ returns. And so our final point let us understand that you won't miss Christ's return. You won't miss His return. That's His point at the end of this passage. You won't miss it. He's saying you, you can't run from it. You, you run from this tribulation that is coming. You run from the sacking of Rome and the sacking of the temple. But you know what? You can't run from my return. I'm coming. And when I come, from east to west, everyone will see me. It will be like the sun shining in the sky and more brilliance than we've ever seen. All the earth will see him. So he's saying there will be those that come. There will be false prophets and there will be false preachers and there will be false teachers that say, oh, we've seen the Christ over here. They'll say some will point to miracles and signs and wonders that they've done, and they'll do them. But don't believe because of the extraordinary. He's saying, you'll know when I come. There will be some that are in the inner room, and they will be gathered with other people, and they'll say, we saw them in an inner room. Or there will be some that will be out in the wilderness, and they'll be apart from everybody, and they'll say, we've seen him out here. And he says, no. Don't be wooed by those that are exclusive. It seems like when there is persecution, Christians, even Christians, notice he says that they will seek to lead the elect away. Even Christians want to grab something. He's saying, don't be fooled. When the times are hard, it's not as if I've... I've disappeared suddenly somewhere else. When I return, don't grab those things that are offered to you. You will know when I return. It will be clear. You know, there are those bumper stickers. They're funny. You know, where it says, uh, in the case of rapture, this will be an unmanned vehicle. It's funny. I saw another one the other day that said, uh, in case of Thanos, this will be an unmanned vehicle. It's funny. You're as likely to miss Thanos as you are the secret rapture. Because neither one is real. When he returns to take his people home forever, one return, you will see Him. You will not only see Him, everyone will see Him. 
And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he indeed is Lord. Everyone. So Jesus is saying, don't be confused. There'll be hard times. And when they come, I'm still with you. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you, as he says over and over. I'm returning for you. You know, like that newspaper article where they just, they just gave enough information just to tantalize, just to create some excitement. Jesus here, he doesn't give us everything. He, he doesn't even always make it clear. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? 87, or are you talking about the end? It, it's not always clear. And yet he gives just enough. That you and I can have some anticipation and can have some excitement. And when that day comes, it will be an awful day, an awful day for some. It will be a glorious day for those that know Christ. Glorious. And it will surpass every expectation, everyone. I hope you are hiding in him this morning. You could say with the apostle, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We'll look at that a little more next week, his return upon the clouds. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that through your Son and by the Spirit you have Given us some knowledge, we confess that we do not understand it all. We are thankful that you have given us some knowledge that we might be safeguarded from traipsing after this or that, from following these words or those words, that we know generally what to expect and what to look for. We pray that you would give us such eyes of faith. Safeguard and keep us until that day. Give us wisdom to know when to run into the fire, when just to run. Give us a desire to see Christ. Help us to long for that day and be willing to suffer through anything to see that day come. And oh, how good it will be to be hid in Him for all of eternity. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.